I pray all the time. I pray every night. And before I, I even kill them, I'd say a prayer. I'd say, God, forgive me. i got to do this. I'd always say, God, forgive me. Take them out. Ron Baltiera was a sniper. It was a job that he had not expected to take during his tour in Vietnam, but a role he ultimately embraced because of the message of those who trained him, that the battlefield assassin who takes an enemy life saves American lives. Nonetheless, what he did and what he saw haunt him 55 years later. Ron had not witnessed death before his arrival in Vietnam, By the time he came home, he had seen an abundance, including the tragedy of friendly fire. It was an event that his ear and voice were part of as an RTO, radio telephone operator. He knew something didn't add up, but his concerns were unheard when a commanding officer issued the order to open fire. His time at war was not void of humor, much of it macabre, and he finds value and relief in sharing those stories. He shared them with me recently for our podcast. A forewarning, Ron's descriptions of life at war are quite graphic and disturbing, but that's what war is. Let's talk about being a wrestler in high school. You were really good. Oh, yeah. Lightweight, 112. Started out, though, at 95 pounds. That was your weight class. Tell me about your wrestling experience. Well, I grew up in Nottingham, which was an unincorporated area, and everyone on my block all became outstanding athletes because we played baseball, we played softball, we played everything and anything. We went ice skating because, you know, that's the way it was back then. We didn't have what they have today, you know, computers, and we didn't have all this other stuff. So everyone was athletically inclined, and I was the smallest one out there. And I wanted to participate. I wanted to be with them. I got beat up. I got unbelievable bruises I used to come home with. But, you know, that didn't stop me from doing anything. I still went out there. But anyways, all these guys beat me up all these years, so now it was time for me to go to school. They were already sophomores and juniors. I go into high school and I get on a varsity team. As a freshman, I'm on the varsity team. As a freshman, I started breaking records that Revis High School never had, you know, had anybody as a freshman do. I uh, took district, I took conference, I took, uh, I took third and sectional. And then from there on, I was on varsity all four years, undefeated three years on uh, dual meets. And Revis also did some state and championships. Revis, we were state there. champs in 1965. I got there in 63 and 65, we were state champs. So you had a future, perhaps, going on to college if that had presented itself as a wrestler. Oh, yes. But you were living with your grandparents. Yes. And they didn't have the financial wherewithal to make sure you got to school. Right. So, so I, would, I could have got the scholarship, right. I had, as a matter of fact, I was offered a scholarship. So you grew up with your grandparents. Yes. And they did their very best with limited income to make sure you got what you needed. Yes. You went to work after high school in a factory then, and, you, and that was in Berwyn, was it? Yes, Berwyn. So what happens? Yeah, I got the job. Uh, instead of going to college, I got the job to pay for a bill that my grandparents inherited from the electrical company. And they couldn't afford it, so I said, well, I'll just work a year, pay it down, and then I'll go to school. Well, that one year became two years. And that's when I realized all my friends were either were in college, were in the Army, were in the Navy, were in the Air Force. 
and I'm sitting home alone, and I'm so used to being around a crowd of people, athletic athletes at least. And finally I said to myself, man, I'm going to see why I'm not being drafted. And some of my friends used to tell me, well, Ron, you're too short, you're too small. They don't want little guys out there. I was 5'3 half, 120 pounds, 115 around there, varied. So I said, I'm going to go see. So I went to the draft board in Berwyn, and I says, hey, look. I says, why am I not being called for the draft? And he looked me up, and he said, oh, okay, we'll take care of it. 30 days later, I got notice, <laughs> and that's how I ended up in the Army, volunteered for you, the draft. You volunteered for the draft, but unknown to you then, a draft notice had been sent to your mother way back, right? She, this was like before, this was 1967? It was in 67. And she gets a notice that says, you are eligible and you are to report, but you never saw that. I never knew about it. Never knew about it until... Uh, you know, my mother died last year, uh, or two years ago, and my sister went through all her paperwork, and she hands me a letter, and she says, look, you got to see this. And I said, see what? And she's laughing. She's coming here. At that time, she was with her boyfriend, Dan, and he said, whoa, you're a jailbird. I said, what do you mean I'm a jailbird? What are you talking about? He says, look. And I handed me this, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's a draft notice. And I says, I volunteered. How could that be a draft notice? And they said, well, look at the date. I looked at the date, and I was drafted a year before I volunteered. Right. And if that notice had been delivered to you, you uh, would have been over in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive. During the Tet, yeah. And we, we, I got there after the Tet, and it was just as bad, if not worse, because now the enemy wasn't afraid of us. They were nipping at us. Any time, any chance, they would pop right out of a hole 10, 20 feet from you, shoot you, and go back down into the hole. They, they had guts, man. I got to give them, they, they were good warriors, man. You got there in August of 68. Correct. And when you are landing, you're under assault right away. Oh. Was it Long Ben? Yeah, I think it was Long Ben Air Force Base. Nah, well, we didn't know what it was. We're sitting in the plane looking down because uh, we had a, a guy that going for his third tour. And, you know, he's showing us what's going on. So we're looking down, and all of a sudden we see pebbles hitting dust and the dust flying up all around there. So we asked the, uh, we call them the, uh, the old-timer. We asked the old-timer, said, hey, what's, what's all going on down there? We're seeing all these pebbles of dust coming up. He said, oh, the airfield's getting mortared. No sooner he said that, boom, the plane took a, a skyrocket launch, like it was being launched to the moon. And everyone, we got shot in the back, and the guy that was standing up explaining to what was going on, he barely hung on to a seat. He was barely, he, was, he had his hands on the seat, on the back of my seat, that, you know, his feet were dangling. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, what the hell, they didn't teach me this. <laughs> I didn't learn this. And that was it, man. That's when we started listening over the mic, and people telling us to prepare ourselves, get our bags. He said, as soon as we land, he said, in, 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 in order to start running out. Uh, we must uh, I think it was about 320 people. And you exit the plane, you deplane, and, and you're running toward wherever uh, cover is. Yes, yes. We didn't know where we were running to, but we knew it was a bunker. But you had to somewhere. run. And they says, all right, now get ready. So as soon as that plane landed and stopped, boom, we hit the bunker. I mean, we, we were out of that plane in less than three to five minutes. 320 guys. So when you start and you're on patrol, uh, do you volunteer at some point to walk point during no, missions? No, there, there was a guy. His name was Turner Taylor. He was from uh, uh, Washington, D.C. He was a point man. 
he ends up being a squad leader later on, but he was a point man at the time. And Turner says, uh, you know, we were friends and we were laughing and joking and carrying on. And he says, you know what? He says, I'm going to give you my position. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? He says, I'm point man. I said, oh, wow, I thought it was an honor. I said, yeah, that sounds good. I said, okay, what do I got to do? <laughs> what do I got to do? Got to walk point. Just sit in front of you. Know, you we're all behind you. You're walking point. Okay, what, what kind of schooling do you get from your mates there when you walk point? What do they say to you? Turner, what did this guy tell you? Oh, he watched me like a hawk. He stood behind me. He just didn't give it to me just to give it to me just to get out of it. This guy is a good guy. We're still good friends today. And he just says, hey, look, anything telling me how to walk, what to smell, uh, what to see, uh, keep my peripheral vision wide open. When you see something, turn to it right away. Keep down. And he educated me every night. We'd sit and talk every night after I started walking point. And I spotted booby traps. I spotted two of them. No, as a matter of fact, I spotted three of them. One of them I saved the lieutenant's life. And I'm walking point, and, uh, you know, Turner Taylor, he was right behind me laughing, you know, always making sure I did my job properly. And for, for me to have a friend like that, and, and, and now that I realize, what, you know, what the war was all about, he was a good guy. He, was, really your, like he was your mentor, wasn't he? He was my mentor. He was a great guy. I love him today. He saved me through a lot of different things that I was unaware of. And then he educated me. In less than a week, I was a point man. When was the first time you were engaged in combat? Uh, well, one time I can really think of that always comes to my mind. We had a guy by the name of Zagarillo. He was a, a Brazilian. And uh, in his ammo pouch, he had beer, he had marijuana, and, you know, he had maybe two or three magazines. I was carrying 32 magazines at a time. I was carrying uh, Claymore, carrying uh, um, whatever he asked me to carry, the, the M60 rounds. I would carry that. I was fully loaded, and we got into a firefight, and we got ambushed, and we hit the ground. Old Zagarillo shoots his two magazines, and now he's screaming at me to give him some of my magazines. <laughs> he was that kind of guy to give me a beer and a marijuana stick, and he was happy with that. And now we got ambushed, and that guy saw he saw the light after that man, and he's asking me for action. No, I'm not giving you anything, and I'm shooting. I'm running through my magazines. And he wants me to give him half of my magazines. And I was just, I educated him. After that, and <laughs> he changed his habit. He changed his habit. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that bad, that deadly, where we were all going to get overrun. It was just a sniper sniping at us. How long did you walk point? I walked point till the uh, Captain Lanier, I guess, another good friend of mine, he just passed. Uh, he uh, lost his radio operator because they walked up to a tree. We're going on a company sweep. His radio operator noticed a sign on a tree that said, fuck you, G.I. So the, lieutenant, the captain seen him, and he seen the guy. He didn't know what he was doing. He walks up to the sign. He's reading it, and the captain's there watching him. And all of a sudden, he goes up, and the captain screams and yells at him, leave it alone, don't touch it. He rips the sign down, kills himself, and injures about three or four, including my captain. There was an explosive attached to yeah, it? it was in, yeah, it was a booby trap. They oh. put it on the back of signs. Like, you know, here's a sign. It says, fuck you, and you walk up. Give me that sign. Rip it down. And it did it did it kill him? No, it wounded. Uh, that was his first uh, Purple Heart, the oh. captain's first Purple. They killed the guy. They pulled it down. And we were maybe 200 feet over, or meters, to the left, and we saw the, we heard the explosion. We looked around, and a bunch of dust and powder, and everybody flattened to the ground. 
So the captain comes back and he says, okay, Lieutenant, I want your, your radio operator. And Lieutenant, what's he going to say? So he gives him his radio operator. Now my Lieutenant is looking for a radio operator. So he's looking at, he comes up to me, he says, Ron, I need a, I need a RTO. Looking me dead in the eye. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, man, that's a dangerous job. I said, no, because I've heard of the Lieutenant radio, both guys getting zapped at the same time. I said, no, man. I said, that's, I don't, and I don't want to jeopardize any of the guys that I knew out there because they were all good guys and I liked them. And nobody really wanted a radio operating job. So I didn't know who to pick. And I'm thinking in my head, man, if I jeopardize, I'm jeopardizing someone's life. So he says, Ron, I need a radio operator. I says, okay. I says, uh, man, I don't know. I says, I can't tell you. You'd have to go and talk to whoever, you know, ask for a volunteer. He kept looking at me. I need a radio operator. I said, what are you talking about? You talking about me? <laughs> he said, I need you to be my radio operator. I said, man, I don't want that job. He said, look, Ryan, if I go, you go. That's how that terminology first started. If I go, you go. Well, I'm thinking, well, what the hell? If I'm going to go, might as well go with somebody I know. <laughs> so he volunteered <laughs> so you. He volunteered me. He volunteered me. I became his radio operator. Now, the danger in being a radio operator is that you've got a big piece of equipment on your back and an antenna sticking up. About six foot. And your your communication, you're a target because of that. Right. And that's one of the reasons that nobody wanted to be a radio RTO, right? Yeah, nobody really wanted that job. But you took it. Yeah, I had no choice. And what happened? <laughs> what happened? So everything went good. Everything was cool. Every time we went to a field, I was still thinking I was point man. Because anytime I saw a bunker in the ground, I'd grab a hand grenade and I'd throw it in there. I'd say, fire in the hole. And anytime someone else spotted it, they'd scream out my name because I guess they were afraid to pull the pin and throw it up. And, I, you know, I'm not me. Give me a grenade and I grab it and I pull it, throw it in the bunker and run and blow it up. One time we went out on the field. We ran into, and it, it, it happened to be one of the largest cache of ammo ever caught, ever found. And I'm blowing up all these bunkers, all these that were surrounded. This big old cache full of grass. It was like a, they, they put feet on top of it, grass, you know, like they're feeding the buffaloes and stuff to hide what was underneath there because we, we approached them too quick. They had no other way of hiding stuff. So we pulled up and I'm blowing things up. And finally, the lieutenant, uh, I'm his radio operator now. And, and he says, hey, he'd call out my name because I'm over there blowing a bunker up with a radio on my back. And he says, hey, RTO, get over here. So I, said, I got a call. So I run to him. He calls. And then when he's done calling, I can feel him hang the phone up on my back. And somebody in the field says, hey, we got another bunker. I go running over there, and they gave me a grenade, and I throw it in there. And then the lieutenant says, I need you over here. Hey, RTO. So I have to run over to the RTO. And this is what, 110 degrees out there in the middle of Vietnam. Sweating like a pig, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Finally, after about five times of blowing up bunkers, Kenyon, his driver, comes up to the lieutenant, and I see them whispering when I come walking back to him. And I didn't know what they were whispering about. And then the lieutenant says, all right, turn around. So I turn around and I feel I'm messing with my belt. And I say, what the heck is this guy doing? Another guy screams out, hey, RTO. He said, we got another bunker. So I go running. He tied an eight-foot piece of rope on the back of my belt to the front of his belt. I go running out there. Boom! I look, my feet went out from underneath me. I laid right on my tailbone and then the radio knocked me up, almost knocked me out, man. And, man, everybody's laughing up the storm. They thought it was the funniest thing they ever seen. So I came back and the lieutenant says, is, that, is this what I got to do to keep you next to me? I'm going to keep you next to me. <laughs> so hey, what we got another bunker. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so what did Ron the RTO say about that? Oh, man. I said, forget that. I said, uh-uh, I'm not running anymore, man. Yeah, I took a go. beating on this one, man. <laughs> I mean, I had everybody in tears.
You had so many different hats over there, different roles that you that you carried, including you became a, a 50 caliber machine gunner oh, on an armored personnel carrier, which yeah. at the time I think you liked when you first well, started I, it. First of all, this was a this was my second job. I jumped from the RTO. My, my RTO was my third job, and the second job where I was good friends with the lieutenant because we worked out. And I was good friends with this guy, Pancho, six foot five Mexican from Mexicali. So the lieutenant is on top of the track. I'm on top of the track. Pancho's on top of the track. So we're all getting ready to dismount. And the lieutenant says, hey, who wants the art? Who wants a 50-gunner job? And he's looking at me. I says, man, I do. I'll take it. So I jumped in. The six foot five Pancho looks at me. I want it. They both, well, both of us. <laughs> when, we, when he offered it to us, we both said we wanted it at the same time. But I jumped in it first. So here he is trying to drag me out of the 50-gun <laughs> hatch. And, you know, I'm trying to fight him off. And everybody on the ground is laughing because I'm 5'3 and a half and he's 6'5. He said it looked like a chihuahua on a Great Dane, man. Oh, we went at it, boy. And finally, finally, said, all right, let him. You could have it. So he let me have it. I said, oh, wow. Okay, so I got the job. You're a pretty tenacious 5'3. <laughs> well, anyways, if they offered it to me first, I'm going to take it. You can't take it away from me once I was offered it. So this is a job that provides you some cover and comfort, but after a while, I mean, you're you're sitting there with a machine gun, it right? Was a, it was a great job because if it rained, you had a poncho to cover you. You didn't have to sleep in the mud. You didn't have to sleep in the rice paddies. Uh, you know, you were completely dry from the elements, and it was a great job. I let, anybody would give a right arm for that job. The only bad thing about it, when a 500-pound bomb hits it, that thing would fly up in the air, and anybody on board is gone. That's the only bad thing about it. And that's the thing that bothered you after no, a while? No, that didn't bother me at all. Okay. What bothered me, we went out in an ambush one time. They used to call us baby killers. And we went out in an ambush, and this little kid come by. We're sitting there. My, our tracks are facing all the way around because this is an ambush. We, we had found out that this is where the enemy stored their ammunition, their food, and everything. So we went out there to go close it down. little kid walks by with a basket full of soda and beer. And he walks up to me, he says, hey, G.I., you want him? You want him? I, I looked down, I was on the 50 gun. I looked down, he said, no, man, I don't want that. No, baby son, no, I don't want none. He said, you sure? I said, yeah, I don't want none. So he kept going all the way down. And he goes by these arvins that were sitting by a little fireplace where they were cooking their lunch and their dinner or whatever it was. And uh, the little guy comes up to him, and I'm still watching, but I'm watching, you know, my position was to watch. The arvins are the South Vietnamese the South regulars. Vietnamese Army, right. right. So the little kid walks by. And he offers them if they want it. And they say, yeah, yeah, come on over here. So he goes over by the Arvins. And all I remember was, boom, a huge explosion. That little kid had a booby trap inside that basket, which he wasn't aware of. And then the mother comes running. I mean, of course, we all panicked. And I locked and loaded on the 50, and we're aiming that way. And this guy locked and loaded. Everybody, the engines go on, man. And we're just ready. We uh-oh, something happened. Because we've seen the bodies fly all over the place. It was just chaos, man, because it happened within our compound. So the mama son goes running by, falls right in front of the pit where the kid was, and starts gathering all the kid's body parts. And, and Arvin, you know, the other Arvins that saw his buddies laying all over the place, grabbed his carbine, which was a hard wooden rifle. And man, he just smacked her right in the face. I remember she had a gash, it split her face wide open. He hit her one time, hit her another time. And finally, man, the American jumped in and we almost got into a fight with the Arvins to stop the Arvins from killing this girl, this lady, the mother of the child. 
And then uh, they're screaming, yelling, carrying on. And all of a sudden, the mother did something with went inside his shirt, and he had five dollar piece, an NPC piece that they gave him to deliver the, the, the drinks, the soda. The kid wasn't aware of what was in there, so he gave him. She found the five dollars in his shirt, and showed it to the Arvins and said, "No, this guy over there gave him five dollars to come." And that was that. And that's when I said to myself, "Man, I don't want this job," because I was stationary. I couldn't do anything. So I told another guy, say, anybody want the 50 gun? Phew, man, yeah, the, the whole squad jumped up, wanted to get on there. So I gave that away. I didn't want that job. You saw some horrible incidents of friendly fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of them occurs when you are a RTO, you're not in the field at this point. You're back in the base, and tell me what happened. Uh, let's talk about the first friendly fire. I was I got stationed to my base in Ben Fook and Tanan Airstrip. We had APCs, so we'd run out there to protect the Tanan Airstrip, and they shot a mortar that went straight up, and it comes straight down, and it killed one of our GIs, and everybody went into a frenzy. Holy shit, we're getting mortared. That was our own mortar. Killed one of our own guys. And I'm sitting there brand new in country, and I'm thinking, man. And the guy realized that I was new. I didn't know anything. And he says, hey, you ever see a dead guy before? I said, no, man. Come over here. He's got a flashlight. He says, come over here. Let me show you something. So I walk up to him. He unzips the bag and shows me. He puts a light on the guy that was just got blown up by one of our own. That's called friendly fire. And that was the first time I ever seen anything like that. And I'm thinking, whoa. So this is what they look like when they're dead. So that was the first friendly fire. Second friendly fire was when I was a, a radio operator, a field RTO. We were on patrol, and one of our APCs hit a mine. Track went up in the air, flew down, hit inside the rice paddy. Around the, ra the, the, the track where it, where it landed, they found a wire. So they pulled the wire up, and it, it was in the water, rice paddy, and you could see the trace where the wire went, right to the corner of a paddy dike. And his gook jumps up and he starts running. And the lieutenant says, there he is, there he is. So I'm behind the lieutenant because I'm his RTO. So he's running, the lieutenant's pointing and he's yelling, he's screaming, he's pointing, pointing. A brand new recruit from the United States actually shot a 79 grenade launcher the way he was taught stateside. Put it on your hip or your lap or your thigh, aim it and shoot it because it gives a hell of a kick. So he gets down in position, he shoots it, and my lieutenant happened to run right in front of it. And boom, it hit him right under the armpit. All I saw was a pair of feet, because I was running behind him. I came to a complete stop. He was down in the ground with that 79 grenade launcher laying right next to him. Didn't go off because it had it had hit, had a fly and it hit something solid. Hit him in the ribs and it was soft, like hitting, I don't know, but it didn't go off. The sergeant in charge puts a steel pot on top of it with his foot on there. Now that thing went off, all of us would have been dead. And that was my second friendly fire. After the lieutenant got wounded, they, they were looking for a battalion radio operator. And a guy came out of the radio shack, and he went to the bar that we, we didn't have a lieutenant now, so we went to the NCO club. And this guy come in, brand new clothes, spit shine boots, handlebar mustache, comes walking in, and walks up to the bartender, and he says, hey, you know RTO Baltier? And the bartender, everybody knew me. He says, he's over there. Comes walking up to me, and I'm sitting with Doc Ogden, a good friend of mine. Then he says, well, I'm looking for, and Doc says, well, what do you need him for? He says, well, we got a position, an RTO, battalion radio operator. I said, oh, man. I said, I just left this. I left the field, and I saw what happened to my lieutenant. I don't want nothing, no part of this. 
And then he says, well, we're looking for you because I'm leaving. I'm going home in two weeks and I want to train someone and I want to train you. I said, why me? I never met you. I don't even know you. He said, you, you sound like a miniature Howard Cosell in a field. <laughs> and I'm thinking, whoa, so I guess he picked me because of that. You know, I mean, to me, it was blow by blow. Anything that went on, I was just telling it like it is. You know, I didn't go by no military talk at that time. Who cares? But your job in, as a battalion RTO is you're talking to all the guys in the field. Oh, after I accept and, the job. Yeah, and you're there. You're directing them. So on this particular night, when you have this awful friendly fire incident, what happened? Well, I was working out like I always did, and E seven in charge hated when I worked out because I was working out because I wanted to get my opportunity. I wanted that scholarship back. I wanted to go back to wrestling. In the radio shack, there was only three of us. It was uh, the commander, the E seven in charge of me and me, the, the radio operator. And sometimes he would jump in and talk, but a lot of times I did all the talking with everybody in the field. And I'd plot their positions on the map, and I'd do sit reps every 15 minutes. So about 11 o'clock at night, I got a sit rep from Charlie Company. And he says, hey, we spotted an enemy, we spotted movement. And I jumped up and I says, okay, where you, what's your location? And I started looking on the map. And then he started saying, well, now we, got, uh, we spotted a platoon. Another squad says, we spotted a platoon-sized element. I said, oh, okay. So I said, what's your location? So he gave me his location, and I'm putting it on the map. And it, it went back and forth for about an hour and a half. They were whispering. They were getting in position. Everybody's getting in position. Finally, the guy out in the field, I don't know if it was the lieutenant or squad leader, says, okay, we're ready to engage. We're ready to open fire. I mean, we're at a point of no return. The three got in position of the one, and they thought it was an easy kill for the three. And... Uh, the fourth one says, hey, it looks pretty pretty hairy. And I'm listening to all this. And I'm writing down and I'm jotting. And I'm, I mean, my heart was just beating. I'm sitting there watching. It's like going to a movie and seeing a movie and you can't do anything about it, man. You just, phew. D7 says, okay, go get the colonel. I says, hey, Sarge. I says, wait a minute. I said, go get the colonel. He yells at me. So I go running in there. I get the colonel. He's sleeping on the hammock. And I walked in there and I says, hey, colonel. I says, we just spotted movement. We need you to come in so that we can decide what we're going to do. Boom, he jumped up right away, put his sandals on. He comes walking, and I'm talking to him on the radio also with the people in the field. And I'm saying, all right, I got the commander. He's coming. He's what? The E-7 briefed the commander 10 feet from when he got up from where he was sleeping till he got to my desk. And when he came to my desk, I had no idea what he was about to say. He comes up to my desk. He puts his foot up on my table. He puts his hand out so I can give him the mic. And I give him the mic, and he says, open fire. Oh, my Lord. Open fire. Man, it didn't last more than a minute and a half before all of a sudden screams out in the field. And then when the fire went off, when they were shooting, I had my mics all up. It looked like I was in the firefight because I can hear every round, every bullet, the guy screaming, the guy's yelling. And the These guy, are American GIs they, firing Americans. at American GIs. All American. Finally, he screams, friendly fire, friendly fire, and then they turn around and they tell us, okay, this is what happened. Eight guys died. Eight, eight guys right here. Look, I showed you this. Unbelievable. This is it. You're showing me a book, Loose Leaf, yep, with all the names of the men who died in that February, friendly fire. February 3rd, Gary Clear, John Russman, Wayne, uh, Ernest Bunch, William Miller, Russell Font. Oh, man. You were not in a position to say, hey, wait, something's not right here. I, you, you never had that opportunity. I tried saying it. 
the E7 didn't do it, and he the colonel made a quick decision. It. He didn't want to listen to it because he was listening to our conversation the whole time. So what did that do to you? Oh, what? that mentally destroyed me. I blame myself for killing these guys. I lived like that for years. Stateside, I couldn't be in a bar drinking, and then they asked, what are you doing now? Did you ever see anything bad or any tragic? I started talking about this, and I'd fall apart. And finally, I went to Jesse Brown, five years of psychic, and finally cleared me, cleared my mind of this. And when I went, I had no idea that I could get disability for this. And I went to Jesse Brown and I, they introduced me to a, a medic and, I mean a doctor, and he gave me 70% PTSD right off the bat because I just jumped up in the middle of telling the story and I said, I need napkins, I need Kleenex, I need something. They wanted to double check on me, see if I was got better or got worse. Well, you may have gotten better, yeah. but it's still with you. Oh, it's still with me to this day. Oh, yeah. And I go to the wall. I, 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 did, I took their names down one time when I went to the wall because I lived in D.C. for a year and a half. We were doing a project. And um, that was it. I didn't want to write any more names down because I got them here. All these guys died. Did your experience with the loss of life and friendly fire cause you to become, want to become a sniper? Oh, that, after that, that was it. I volunteered and uh, the E7 in charge says, no f***ing way, you're staying here. I trained you, I educated you, you ain't going nowhere. I didn't do anything for another two weeks. And then this came, a friend of mine, he was a squad leader. He had two weeks left in country. I says, hey Barry, I says, why do you, where do you, why do you sleep in the bunker? Because I heard he slept in the bunker. Yeah, that's the safest place in town. That's where I got a hammock, I got everything, I got food, I got this and that. All right, all right. Well, one night, the enemy tried to overrun our base camp, and I was a battalion radio at the time. All of a sudden, around 11, 12 o'clock in the morning, we got mortared. And the mortar, first mortar hit the perimeter, and the second mortar hit my radio shack direct, killing my dog, blowing my TV up, and if it wasn't for me and the other two, Radio operators to run into our bunker and jump under our bed, we would have got zapped ourselves that day. I happened to jump under the, the bed, grab the pillow, put it over my ears, and boom, I got hit with shrap metal in my pillow. And I tried to pull it out and I burned my finger because that thing was red hot. After that, this little lieutenant, lieutenant's going walking by the windows that you can see outside headquarters, and they're carrying a dead body. And they brought the body, I opened the door, let them in, they laid the body on the floor, and I asked the guy, the lieutenant in charge, hey, can I see who that is? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, don't worry about it. I zip it open, who is it? The guy that slept in the bunker, they found him in his hammock. Hmm. They got a direct RPG right through that little slot that was no more than six inches by 24 inches. Got a direct hit, and then that was it. I went back to the radio and I told that E7 in charge, I said, this, I'm going to sniper school. Being a sniper is a whole different mindset. Oh. You're an assassin in the field. Yes. And how, how do you adjust to that? How do you prepare yourself for that? It took me two weeks to finally kill somebody. I spotted him, but I wouldn't kill him. And I was with Gramps. Gramps says, all right, you're going out he, with he's me. He's a fellow sniper. And he's called Gramps beginning. because he is he's older. He's the one in charge. 37. He was, he's in charge of all the snipers because he's, he's seven. They're telling him, man, Ron, you know, he spotted people. He didn't shoot them. So then Gramps heard about it. Gramps said, oh, you're going out with me. So I went out with him. We're on a patrol. And all of a sudden, Gramps spots a female 
carrying a basket with a little girl. And Gramps Ames, he was already had three or four kills. And they sent us out there because of that. It was, you know, they had communication going on back there. Anybody comes out of this hooch, they're going to go down to another location. Anybody coming out, you take them out because that's where they were getting their information was from this one hooch. So here this girl comes walking out carrying a basket, carrying good, you know, carrying a whole bunch of paperwork like this. We didn't know she was pregnant at the time. Gramps takes aim, <laughs> takes her out. And then the little girl bends down, picks up the file, and she starts running. Now, I'm on the other end, and Gramps tells the lieutenant that she's coming my way. So I see her, and I look at because I, I was watching Gramps the whole time. So I'm watching her, watching her, and Gramps says, shoot her, shoot her. He's whispering, all right, Ron, take her out. She's right in front of you. You can take her out. She reminded me of my sister. My God, man, I got a flashback of my sister running right past me. And I took aim, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it, so I let her go. Man, Gramps went nuts. He says, God damn it, man. He says, I'm court-martialing. He was going to court-martial me. I said, oh, shit. He screamed. He was going to court-martial me three times. So anyways, that night, we're sitting at an angle. The lieutenant spots three gooks coming our way. He says, sniper, you got three bodies coming this way. So I said, look. Oh, wow. 500 meters away. Get ready. I'm taking a deep breath. My heart is just pounding. 500 meters, 400 meters, 300 meters, 200 meters. The lieutenant says, hey, sniper, you got to do something, man. He gets into our perimeter. We're going to end up shooting each other. And he was coming right into our perimeter, 50 meters away, one one dike away. I see. I, I had no choice. I fired. I saw the guy's feet go up in the air, hit the ground. And he hit the ground. I'm sitting there waiting. I didn't fire again because the other two hit the ground. Maybe about 30 seconds go by. The other two stand up like it was nothing, like they stepped on a booby trap. And they're looking, they're stomping the ground what they think they hit, you know, seeing if there was a booby trap. Finally, one guy picks the body up and throws him on his shoulder, and he hands his rifle to the guy behind him. And I'm sitting there watching the whole thing. They turn around, and they start marching towards me again. I says, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Pow! I fired the second round, knocked the second guy down. All of a sudden, the other guy starts firing back. Just He just started shooting. He didn't know where I was at. I jumped up, jumped over the dike, and I started chasing this guy. I'm running, I'm looking at my skull. <laughs> he got away. That's where I got the Bronze Star with the V device. So I went from being court marshal to getting the Bronze Star V device. <laughs> After that, it was like baseball. I wanted to play ball. I wanted to kill more, as many as I could. But you have these moments of uh, terrible internal conflict where you hesitate because somebody reminds you of your sister. Yeah, yeah. And you don't know who these people are, but you're told they're the enemy. Yeah. So you reach a point where you just follow orders? Oh, yeah. We, I killed, we killed a lot like that. When I was a battalion radio operator, and I'd see these snipers come in, i look at them, wow. They were quiet, cold, not friendly at all. And I couldn't understand. I tried talking to them. I could talk to anybody, make anybody laugh and joke. And get, I couldn't get a whole. I couldn't get through to these guys. And I'm thinking to myself, "Damn, man, what kind of guys are these? You know, they're actually killers." Did you reconcile yourself to that? Did you become that? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. I mean, I saw that, and I ended up being the same thing. Now I know why. Because we had a kill. you struggle with that today? Oh, well, you see, I got security. You saw my gates all around my house. I got guns galore. I mean, you know, if something ever came in here, I'm ready. But I mean in terms of having to take life in the field of battle and oh, war. 
Yeah, that, oh, yeah, that affects me all the time. I pray all the time. I pray every night. I, and before I, I even kill them, I'd say a prayer. I'd say, God, forgive me. i got to do this. I'd always say, God, forgive me. Take them out. Well, you had a kinship with Gramps. Right. Well, he would, right. He became your, he was your mentor as a right. sniper. Right. And uh, even though he may have wanted to court martial you yeah. at one point in time, that was one time. He became one out of three. a good friend. <laughs> he adopted, he was uh, the godfather to my daughter when he finally called me after 27 years. But prior to that, you come home to the States and you hear that Gramps is dead. Yeah. That oh, he yeah. has been killed in battle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you've lost a friend there. Oh, yeah. And it comes at a time when you, you've come back from Vietnam, you're at Fort Hood, Texas, and you have this incredible gray cloud that comes over your life. Your fiancé says goodbye. That's it. You lose your dad. Yeah. You lose Gramps. Gramps gets shot in the face five times. Uh, my brother gets shot in the hip, bleeds to death in the city streets of Chicago. Father dies of pneumonia at Jesse Brown. And my stepfather dies of cancer, never known his son died. So I said to myself, man, if it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have had no luck. That, and I was still in the military. I had seven months to finish my military career. You're thinking at that point in time that this isn't much of a life you're going to be leading oh, here. Because everything's gone to hell. Everything. You know, not only out in the field killing, now I come home and look at all the people that died around me. And you also come back to a world that doesn't understand you and you don't understand it. And they don't... The world doesn't like you very much. I didn't say I was ever in the military when I came home. I hid that from everybody unless I was in a bar drinking with my other vet buddies. World War II and Korean vets didn't like us. We <laughs> we hung out at VFW Hall. They didn't want nothing to do with us. They didn't want to talk to us. They ignored us. So when was the first time you really felt any sort of redemption as a Vietnam vet? Was it the Welcome Home Parade? The Welcome Home Parade was the one. That did it. 1986. Oh, yeah, that was it. Well, you came back to a world that was different, but you had a skill. You became a contractor. Right. And you were able to get yourself going at a time when Mayor Washington was in power. Right. And you were able to acquire some minority contractor bids, which we were, didn't we previously act, exist. No, we started it. We were one of the first. What was your company? A DR Balti Contracting. So you you had a pretty successful career as a contractor. Yes, I did, until I ran into political contractors. The political field tore us up. We had to quit. That's a different war in and yeah, of itself, isn't it? That was it? another war we were battling, because they didn't want minorities to get any piece of the pie. One piece of the pie that you did get takes place on 26th in Little Village. Oh, yeah. And you build the ark there that's now quite famous, oh, right? Oh, yeah. It became a historical landmark. So in 1990, the little village arch goes up. It's Arco de Velita, right? Did I get close to it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> La Vellita. La, La Vellita, yeah. Okay. But the arch there is, I mean, that's that's part that's of the... That's a symbol of the Mexican. That's a symbol. Yeah, right. And it's an entryway into that neighborhood. Right. They wanted to put another one on the other end, and they just never did that one. So. But you built it. I built it. My partner and I were both. Uh, my partner was a combat engineer, Vietnam, same as me. But that's a source of real pride for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I did that for my grandparents. We even took a cut in pay. And... You hired veterans. Uh, all we wanted was veterans and minorities. We had I used all the minorities on the block. And today, you continue to work with veterans. This oh, yeah. is, this is a, a cause for your life at right. this point. 
Right. Tell me what, what you do for them. What problems do they have that you hope to help them with? The majority of the veterans that are here today, still alive, are unaware of what's out there for them. And we educate them. First thing we ask them, what did you do when you are in the service? And then when they start telling them, look at all the experience I had. It doesn't take much for me to understand what he's talking about and the problems that I know he's got. When they're working, making good money, I don't want the money. I don't want the government. But when they retire, the disability comes out of them, and they're in bad shape. The majority of the, the veterans I help are retired, and that's when because they're willing to listen. But when they're working, they don't want to listen. I didn't want to listen. I didn't realize I needed it. <laughs> I was in bad shape. I got 240% disability plus some. What we do is we work with the veterans. We explain to them. We tell them, say, hey, you're entitled to it. But a lot of guys don't know about what they're entitled to. They don't know. Now I realize if a veteran wants it, I'm going to give them 110%. When you went on honor flight in the fall of last year, yeah. you went to the wall, and you said you'd been in D.C. before you lived there, yeah, so I presume yeah. you went to the wall back oh, then. Oh, I went to the wall quite a bit by bike. I would ride my bike there. But you found the names of a lot of the guys, particularly in that one friendly fire yeah, incident. Yeah. And when you stand there and you see those names, what are you thinking? Oh, man, I remember the day. It's like, half, like it was yesterday. You're not going to forget. And then whoever I'm with, I'll tell them, this is what happened. Did your experience on Honor Flight have any positive effect on you? Yeah, it made me feel good again, like 1986, especially when I got home. The way they treated me there and the way I treated when I got home. Part of our mission is to educate kids, and you do a lot of that talking. You talk to groups. Oh, yeah. What do you want kids to know, kids who are old enough to understand historically what Vietnam was all about and the role that soldiers, that GIs like you played, what do you, what do you want them to know about you and others like you? That this is a free country, and if it wasn't for veterans, it wouldn't be free. I try to explain that to them. It was us, our, any veteran that you know, salute him, hug him, tell him thank you. I says, because this is what they do to keep you free. They're young. They don't really know what freedom is. I just show them what a, mil what a veteran is, show them what we go through. And when I go in there and I tell them, just like I, I'm telling you the stories, a lot of them are so young that they don't understand, but a lot of them really, they, they catch it. And they want to be part of it when you're talking. They'll raise their hand, they'll ask you a question. And they'll say, hey, what about this? What about that? How does it feel to kill? Everybody asks me that. How, How does it feel to kill somebody? Oh, man, it doesn't feel good at all. What do you tell them? I just tell them, well, there's something that you ever, never, ever want to witness because it's something that will stick with you the rest of your life. You don't want that. That's all I can tell them. That's something you don't want. Do you get into any political discussions about Vietnam? Have you reached any conclusions about what you should say to kids when they ask you about our involvement in Vietnam? Yeah, I'll just tell them, uh, well, even my family here don't really know how I felt about it because I didn't tell them. I just felt it was a war that I, it was wrong. That's all I can say. It's a war I would never, maybe my mother was right by hiding my draft notice. She knew something I didn't know. This is not to say that you're not proud of your service. Oh, man, I'm very proud of it. Very proud. I'm happy I did what I, I saved a lot of lives when I was there. Even though it was not the good war, not it was a bad war, but I saved lives. Gramps would always tell me, he said, do you realize that when you take out one person, you take out two people, you might be saving tons of people's lives? He was constantly telling me that. Finally, it hit me. 
that helps justify your oh, action. It hit me, yeah. It takes some courage to share all this stuff, I think. Oh, doesn't it? yeah. It was hard to talk about. You can't generally share with everybody, but, but you'd like to put this in a book form, wouldn't you? Well, they gave me their stories of things that I did when I was with them that I wasn't even aware of, that I completely forgot, you know, because when I came home, especially when I, as a sniper, I didn't want nobody to know that. That was something that you don't brag about, especially me at that time, because I was not happy or proud. But now so much time has passed, and you want people to know about your experience? For yeah, what, yeah. what reason? Why well, do you so want they, them to know? They, they can understand what it's like. Things that uh, you go through with your fellow man out in the field. Any regrets? Regrets overall. No, because they took our friend. They took my friends' lives. It was fifty-fifty, man. You or me. As the years passed, were you dealing with demons that you couldn't demons, handle? Demons, I would think so. Yeah, when I was drunk. When I was drunk, that was the worst part of it. So that's why when these guys come home, whew, and they start drinking. It's going to come out. You didn't equate any of that with PTSD then. You didn't. No, I didn't know what PTSD you know, was. You didn't know what it was. No. You do now. I do now. Now I know when I see somebody, when I talk to them, when I go over things with them, I could see it. And, and that's said, that's part of your mission. Oh, yeah. And helping oh, other yeah. veterans. Being retired gives you the opportunity to help other people who've yep. been through difficult situations. Yes, right, definitely. And so that's your mission now. That's that's part of it right now. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's a big part of it. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I congratulate you on that mission, yep. and I, I thank you for sharing some difficult stories. Imagine you roll stuff around in your head a lot, don't you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think about this all the time. I do a lot of writing. Write about my family, write about Vietnam, write about Vietnam, write about my family. I wish you well, Ron. All right. Write long, write often. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. We hope you learned something from today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.